one. I found the secret to getting, no, no, it's okay. I found the secret to getting people sitting closer to the front. You know what the secret is? You put their kids and grandkids in a special program and they will always sit up front. Uh, so maybe every week we can have a, a children's program so we can have all, everybody sitting up front. No, that's okay. Um, I was just uh, sitting in the back there praying as I always do before coming out this morning. And I sort of got this shock of revelation. No, do not write it in scripture. Not that kind of revelation. But this realization. And when I was a kid, before I became a Christian, church was just this obligation. And I knew that I had to go because my mom made me go, my grandma made me go. And I, I, I came out of purely wanting to keep peace at home because if I put up a fight, it would be miserable at home. And so I just simply went to church and went through the motions. And it was an obligation. And at a point, it became a dread. I dreaded it. Not only because I had to wear a suit and a tie as a kid, not only did I have to sit quiet for a whole hour as a kid, none of it. None of it had any meaning for me whatsoever. And so it was a burden and an obligation and just simply a dread when I thought about church. And sitting here this morning praying and saying, Lord, you know, bring your spirit here in worship and in your word and bring life I realize that for me, and I hope for you, being here, cutting out an hour of a very busy week we had and a very busy week to come, I hope it doesn't feel like an obligation to you. I hope you didn't wake up this morning saying, oh, I have to go to church. People have to know I'm alive, so I have to go to church. Um, I hope it is out of a sense of joy. I hope it is out of a sense of, this is where I get to see friends, maybe even family, and this is a place where I know that in the busyness of my life, I can spend an hour before God and focus. Focus on Him. The new year always gives us a moment of reflection, doesn't it? It always makes us think, how was the past year? Did it live up to my expectations? How is the new year going to come? And we get a chance to sort of restart and refocus and reevaluate our lives. And sometimes that's good. Sometimes we look to a new year and say, I cannot wait for the new year to come. It could not possibly be as bad as 2019 was. And we may have thoughts of regret from the past year, pain from the past year, we may have thoughts of, I never want to go through that year ever again. But it's not all doom and gloom. Some of you may be thinking 2019 was the most awesome year there ever was. Maybe it was a year where you found love. Maybe it was a year that you were blessed at work. Maybe it was a year that your family relationships had never gotten better. A new child into the family, a grandchild, something that just made this year amazing for you. And you're looking at it going, 
I want it to last. I don't want it to go. And it's okay to have both of those kind of feelings at the same time. I never want to relive that year again. And wow, I can't imagine how 2020 can be even better than this year. There's no going back in time. There's no reliving 2019. There's no reliving the best moment of 2019. Good news, there's no way you can relive the same moment that was difficult in 2019. Everybody gets one year, one month, one life. This single hour cannot be relived. This is the hour that God has given you to live and to shine. And if he gives you another hour, if he gives you another day, another week, another year, another decade, then that is icing on the cake. Because he's not guaranteed that to anyone. It's not a promise that we have more than just the next breath. So how do we put all of those kind of things together? A feeling of joy of being in church and not an obligation. A sense of appreciating God's hand in the past year and an expectation for looking forward to God's hand in the next year. How do we put that all together and live for him in the very moment that God has given us? There's a, a passage in 2 Corinthians 5.17, and I apologize already for using the New Living Translation as quoting. It's probably not the best translation out there, but it really puts together, I think, the emphasis of what it means for us. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. The old life is gone, the new life has begun. The old 2019 is soon leaving us, the new 2020 is right around the corner. And just so you um, don't feel pressured, I'm not going to sign anybody up for a new diet plan today, nor am I going to try and get you to join a membership at a gym. I've done all those things. I'm not asking you to make a list of what you, your resolutions are for the new year. None of that is important. What is important, though, is understanding new life in Christ has meaning. And it means more than just church. It means more than just reading scripture and singing it's it's life it's all of life and so what does god have to say to us about living in the newness of life now new life comes to us through and we call it various things being born again being regenerated going from death to life being saved all of those things mean the same thing there's a moment in time where i realize that my sin is so heavy, it is so dark, that if I was to die in my sin, I'd be doomed. And I look for a way out of it. And God tells us there is no way out of it. That is yours. You own it. It's yours. There's no way out of it. You cannot get out of it. Just like a dead person can't all of a sudden make themselves alive, you can't make yourself alive in Christ. And so God says, but where it's impossible for you, it's very possible for me. 
I'm very able to do miracles. I'm very able to bring the dead to life. And he says, for that transaction to take place, for your death to become life, something has to happen inside of you. That's being born again, regenerated, new life, being saved. And God says, it's only possible when you put faith and trust in me and you believe that my son has accomplished it on your behalf, that he died for your sins, that he took not only your sin, but the penalty for it, which is eternal damnation, and he bore it upon his own shoulders, and he was victorious in that because on the third day he rose again from the dead. So we know that he was victorious in what he accomplished on the cross. When that occurs in a person's life, and they realize, Lord, I need you. I need you. You paid it all, and I am indebted to you. And our Christian life sometimes then focuses on how do I pay him back? Well, I pay him back by being a good person. No. I pay him back by going to church. No. I pay him back by reading my Bible every day and having devotions. No. I pay him back by tithing. No. I pay him back by, oh, volunteering at church because they're always asking for volunteers. No. God says, I'm not asking you to pay it back why it's called grace i'm giving it to you with no expectation that you somehow make it up to me god says it is a free eternal gift it's salvation i save you from your sins but he does tell us that when that event occurs and i pray that that has happened for each and every one of you if it hasn't then you need to seek me out and we'll sit down and talk. Okay, we'll work through this. But in the meantime, for those who have a sincere understanding, even if it's small, that God needs to be my Savior to save me from the sin and the punishment so that I can walk in newness of life, I want to turn your attention to Romans chapter 6. Probably one of the most valuable chapters of scripture in speaking about new life how do i approach this new life how do i even if i've been saved for 50 60 years how do i make this hour new for god how do i walk in the newness of this life that god has given me and paul does a masterful job in explaining to us how to live a new life even if i've been living this life for 50 years how do i this hour Tomorrow, the next day, and if the Lord so blesses us the next year, how do I live it for him? Not to pay him back, but to show an appreciation for all that he's done for me. How do I live the new life that God has given me? Now Paul starts in the first two verses and talks about our resistance to sin. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? so that grace may increase or may abound? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? See, previous to this, in the first five chapters of Romans, Paul is building up a case that we're not saved by obedience to the law. We're not saved by obeying the Ten Commandments and doing all those things. We're not saved by rituals and traditions. We're not saved by our effort that we put into our relationship with God. We're saved in spite of that. All of those things 
traditions and commandments and regulations and sacrifices should have taught us one thing. You can't do it. That was the whole point. You can't do it. You can't obey enough. You can't sacrifice enough. You can't read enough, study enough, give enough, serve enough. You can't. And so Paul brings out the argument, but Jesus can. And then Paul has to address another argument, though. Okay, if my obedience means nothing, it can't earn me anything. Jesus has done it all. I can do anything I want. Is that what you're saying, Paul? And Paul says, no. The opposite is true. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. We are those who died to sin. How can we live to it any longer? See, the point is, you're right, Paul. Even though grace covers my sin, even though I am made new by the work of Christ, and all I do is believe, I don't have a right to then keep sinning. Because in a perverse mind, someone could say, well, if you want more grace, how do you get more grace? Well, you sin more. If you sin more, you get more grace. You get more of Jesus. You get more of this relationship. Paul says, no, that's impossible. Because there's a new thing that's happened in you. And that new thing is now a resistance to sin. You don't have to sin. You don't have to live in that old lifestyle. You don't have to give in to anger and temper. You don't have to give in to resentment and bitterness. You don't have to give in to selfishness. You don't have to give in to pride and arrogance. You don't have to give in to judging others based on their appearance, based on their skin color, based on their language, based on their culture, or based on how much money they have or don't have. You don't have to fall into the old habits of a sinful lifestyle. Well, Paul continues and says, not only can we resist sin, not only if we've been dead to it, how would we live with sin any longer? He says in verse 3 and 4, or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Baptism is important. Baptism is one of the two things that Jesus left with us that said, you need to do this. You need to do this. If you want to claim to be my disciple, then you need to be baptized. And the second thing, what did he tell us to do? The Lord's table. As often as you gather together to celebrate this, you do it together. And it's called communion, meaning all of us participate in it. Now, the mode of baptism, how it's done, is not really important. Or the mode of how communion is done is not really that important. There's just a few elements. Water for baptism and some form of bread and grape wine slash juice can be the other. So there's only like a few things. How it's done is not relevant. Churches have been doing it differently for many, many centuries for thousands of years, and they will be doing it differently than we're doing it a thousand years from now if the Lord tarries that long. 
But the principle, the imagery behind baptism here is clearly what we see and what we practice at Calvary. Where the person goes into the water, they sit back, and they come back up. As a symbolizing of someone who is dying and someone who is being raised from the dead. Baptism is not just ceremonial or traditional. It is meaningful. And Paul connects the meaningfulness of baptism with Jesus. Not in Jesus' baptism, but in Jesus' death and resurrection. Look at here again, verse 3 and 4. Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That symbolism of being buried in the water for a moment, that symbolism of laying down and being covered. Because in our culture, and even in the cultures of the time of Jesus, death was often accompanied with burial, whether it was in a cave or whether it was in the ground. And so that symbolism is clear. I'm, I'm laying my life down. And Paul says, when you're baptized, you're baptized into Jesus' death, and then an, a miracle occurs. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Jesus was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. God says there's symbolism here and importance and meaning that when we die, and we symbolize that in baptism, we are brought out of the water as a symbol of his resurrection. He says that happened to you. And I pray that if you claim Jesus, as a side note, if you claim Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you've not been baptized, it's very important not to earn respect, not to earn merit, not to pay him back, but as a sign and symbol of the meaningfulness of what it's done in your life, the meaningfulness of salvation. If you look in the New Testament, occurrences of baptism were very spontaneous. Very spontaneous. The person was saved, and immediately they said, I need to be baptized. And so Paul baptized whole households, and others baptized people right on the side of the road, right when there was water. Oh, there's water. Let's get baptized. Fine, let's do it. It was spontaneous. It was a moment of sure joy and understanding that I'm putting away something old, and now something new has come in its place. New life. A life that Christ has changed in me. Paul continues to talk about new life in verse 5 through 7. He says, For if we have been united with him in death, so here's an if then statement, very logical. If we've been united with him in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. If we've died with him, and we're connected to him. We're united to him. He died in our place and we died with him. Our sins were put upon his shoulders. It is just as if we died, but he was our substitute. He took it on for us. So in our name, he died on the cross and was buried. And Paul says, if that happened and he was raised, guess what's going to happen to you? You will be raised. But you will not be raised with all the infirmities that you have right now. Praise God. You will not be raised weak. Praise God. You will not be raised with sorrow. 
praise God. You will not be raised to live this same life again. You'll be raised much differently. You'll be raised like him. How was he raised? A body not like ours. A body that no longer suffered. A body that no longer aged. A body that no longer was encompassed by the frailties of human flesh. It was a perfect body. Perfect. The way God intended it in the Garden of Eden. That's awesome news. If I'm united in his death, and I'm united in him, then I'm going to be united in his life. United in his resurrection. And that's where the hope of the Christian resurrection lies. Is if I'm tied to Christ in this spiritual way, and Paul says I'm also tied to him in a physical way, then Christian of all people, you have amazing hope for the future. This next hour should not be an hour of dread. The next year should not be, oh no, what's wrong going to happen? What, what, what's going to fail? What's going to break in my life in 2020? No, 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 no. The thought should be, I've been buried with him. I'm going to be raised with him. 2020 then becomes a meaningless number that we live through and we accomplish things, but it doesn't become a dread. It doesn't become a, what if... This happens. It doesn't become, as Preston said, moments of fear that we have to worry about. It becomes a tremendous blessing because we already know the end game. If the Lord gives all of us another year, we'll be here a year from now with the same thought in our mind. This next year, hey, we live this life. We're pilgrims in this land. This is, I'm not tied to this. This is not my inheritance. This is not my future. My future is what God has created for me in heaven above, right in front of his throne. And we can have a sense of peace. We can have true peace that surpasses all understanding. It doesn't make rational sense. I know it. But God says it makes perfect sense if you're my child because my child walks in the newness of life not tied to the old fears and old dread and old memories, but a life that is tied to the future expectation of what happened to Christ is going to happen to me. That is fantastic. Paul continues in verse 6 and says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. That's the crux. That's the meat of what it means to have new life. I am free from sin. When God created you, and when God then did this miracle of recreating you in his likeness, however that event took place, and some don't even remember the day, God was just gracious early on to give you a heart for Jesus. And some of you remember the day. I remember the day and time I was, I could not have been any lower and Jesus came into my life. And some of you may be, Tim, I don't even know if that happened to me. That's when we can get together and talk over a cup of coffee. That'd be awesome. But the end result of that action on God is so that you can go into the next hour never 
having to sin again. That's possible. God's freed us from that. We no longer have to fall. We no longer have to have fear or anxiety or resentment or sorrow in that sense. We no longer have to sin. God has freed us from that. Is that not a victorious message that we should be reminding ourselves each and every day? I have to remind myself that every single day. And some days I remember it well, and some days I go through it and I go, ah, why am I sinning like this? It's not a matter of willpower. Okay, please take that out of the equation. It's not a matter of willpower. It's not a matter of being motivated. It's not a matter of any of that. It's a matter of remembering. Just a memory. God's freed me from that. I don't have to shake my fist at that person. I don't have to, in my heart, feel this way towards that person. I don't have to respond that way. I don't have to act that way. I don't have to treat others that way. God has freed me from that. And it's simple remembrance. Remembrance. I don't have to. I can walk in newness of life. And so that death that we died in Christ actually brings freedom. Because when we think of death, we think that's the end. We think that's the end. Because that's what we see, right? When someone we know has died, what happens to their body? It decays. It goes away. And slowly, day after day after day, year after year, we tend to not forget them, but there are days that go by where we don't remember them. So death for us seems to be a final thing. A final thing. But our death in Christ is not a final thing that we slowly forget about. Our death in Christ is an everyday reminder. What he accomplished on the cross is mine today. It's not just an event that happened 2,000 years ago. It's an event that I live in the shadow of every single moment. Now that's not some grotesque always thinking about death always talking about death, 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 death. Because he didn't remain dead, did he? He rose again. He rose again. So the story of his death and our death in him is a story that also contains life. But when we died in him, when he took upon our sorrow, our grief, our shame, when he took upon our sin and the debt of it, the consequence of it, the penalty of it, he ransomed us so that we would be able to live life to the fullest. As Paul says otherwise, or other places, live life abundantly. Not just exist, but exist with abundance of his influence in our lives. To the point, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. You've all had really refreshing news in your life at some point. You've always had refreshing news. A new job, a new child, a new relationship, a newness. And you know the feeling of, oh, how exciting that was. How neat that was to see that accomplished. That's kind of how our relationship with God and sin is like 
in that every moment we can wake up and every moment we can live and every moment we can focus on God's made something new in my life. I no longer have to be that person. I've changed. God's changed me. I can live in that change to the fullest. Every day can be a New Year's day. Every day can be a new day in which I look at it and I go, God can accomplish great things in me because God has taken away the old and buried it. It's dead. And he has risen me to live new for him. Paul continues and sets this argument really strongly in verses 8 through 10. Because not only do we have a freedom from sin, no longer a bondage, no longer I have to sin, but he's also done something amazing that he talks about in verse 8 and following. He says, now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we have also lived with him. Okay, if we've died with him and he rose and we're connected to him, then I died with him and I rose with him. Same logic. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Do you, do you ever think about dying? I don't know when it was in my life, what age I became, where dying sort of, I realized, oh, that's going to happen to me. When I was younger, I didn't think about dying at all. I, I lived in a way that kind of laughed at death, saying, death, you have no power over me. You can't do it to me. I'm too strong. I'm too young. I'm too active. Whatever it might be, you can't do it. And then there was some, some age in which I realized this really probably is going to happen. It's really probably going to happen. And it wasn't a morbid thought. It wasn't, you know, this doom and gloom and I'm going to become goth and wear black the rest of my life and paint my fingernails black. I mean, I wasn't, you know, freaky about it. It's just, all right, it's going to happen. And of course, attached to that, there's some, I'm too spiritual to say fear, there's some uncertainties, maybe, that accompany dying. The uncertainty is, I don't know how or when, and that's kind of important for the rest of the people around me, not for me, it won't matter to me, but it'll certainly matter for the people around me, the where and the when. Um, and then the uncertainty of the how. Is it going to be quick? Or is it going to be prolonged? And then there's the uncertainty of what's it going to feel like? What's it going to be like? Because I've never experienced it, and I'm kind of unsure of what to experience. And yes, I've heard stories even from a person that I know, reliably know, that told me his after-death experience, and then he came back to life on the operating table. Um, you know, but I can't see those, I, I can't feel those, and those are sometimes a little suspect because there's a lot of gray area that, that comes into that. Uh, as, as all of you should know, uh, I skydived 
I mean, I've done it once, but I kind of consider myself a skydiver because I skydive. Infrequently, but I do it. I did it once. That, no, it's not enough. I don't think it's enough. But for now, it's enough. Um, I must have watched hours of people skydiving for the first time. What was it like? On YouTube, you know, what was it like? What was the feeling? What was the rush? What were the fears? And of course, I watched some of those malfunctions, but they all got fixed. Uh, but I watched a lot of it. So I kind of knew going into it, especially with the guy that was jumping with me who had done it over 7,000 times. Okay, I kind of know what to expect. Now, I didn't really fully understand it, but I kind of had an expectation to what that was going to be like. And we have moments like that in our entire life. What's it going to be like to get married? Oh, this is what it's like. They didn't show these on the videos. They didn't tell me about these things. And every event in our life, we kind of have that uncertainty. We have people giving us experiences, but we still have uncertainty. And so there's concern when we go into something new or different. We've never experienced death, so that uncertainty of what it's going to feel like and be like and, and what's going to happen next really is one of the mysteries we are all going to face by ourselves. And maybe that aloneness kind of feels uncertain at the moment. And then we realize, no, we may be surrounded by family and friends at that moment. And we may, we may be immediately with Jesus at that moment. Or there may be a second where I'm like, I think I'm dead. And all of a sudden, everything in Scripture comes to pass that when I'm dead, I'm with him immediately. Uh, but there's still some uncertainties. And Paul bears this out in those verses. Now, if I died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. He died once. And the promise to you and I is that we will die once unless he returns before that. But it will only happen once. There is not this cycle of having to live and die, live and die, live and die, live and die. It happens once. There is no reincarnation. That is a false, damnable doctrine. It is not true. It is not scripture. It is not how God operates. And so knowing that we only die once, only experience it once, kind of makes me happy that I don't have to go through this but one time and God will be with me every step of the way. I only have to experience it once. You only have to experience it once yourself. Now we experience it many times with, with other people, the feeling of loss, the feeling of separation, the feeling of sorrow and pain and sadness but we will only experience it once, just like Christ did. And dying with him and raising with him gives us that guarantee that that death, that uncertainty, only happens once. And I will be with him the entire time. It does not master him, meaning he does not remain dead, which means we do not remain dead. But we have a newness of life. And then he finishes in the last few verses of that section 
In the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So in the same way that Christ died once to death, to sin, has mastery over it, so we too need to have that same mindset in the same way, count yourself, think to yourself, you know, make a clear mark in your life. I no longer have to fear sin and death. It's conquered. And he says it's a mental process. You have to remember that. You have to think that. You have to remind yourself that. You have to count yourself. I'm, I'm in Christ. So if I'm in Christ, I'm dead to sin. I don't have to sin. And because Christ gives me freedom over sin, I now have freedom over death. I don't have to fear death. I don't have to dread it. I'm not going to remain dead forever. I'm going to walk in the newness of life just as I see in baptism, burial and resurrection. So what happened to Christ happens to me, but I have to count myself that. I have to think about that. I have to remember, no, I don't have to sin. I'm in Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. I don't have to obey sin. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves up to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are no longer under the law, but you are under grace. The application of all of this is that I can spend the next moment, the next hour, the next year living in righteousness. I can spend the next year serving others and loving others. I can spend the next year giving of myself for Christ to you. And God says that is reasonable and acceptable. That is what I've made you to be, is to be an instrument and a vessel and a place where righteousness lives and breathes. You don't have to sin because I've made you different now. I've made you new. And our calling and our duty and our obligation, if you want to put it in those words, is to live that way. To live as if God has defeated death in my life, that God has defeated the grave, that God has defeated sin. I no longer am a slave to it. I no longer am bound to it, but I'm free. So as you think about the new year, as you think about all the resolutions that you may want to accomplish, put this at the top of the list. I want to count myself dead to the old self and alive to God. And how that's going to look, how that's going to play out, what that's going to accomplish is going to be different in every one of our lives. It's not a cookie-cutter approach of these are the top ten things. He says you have your individual life and sphere of influence and people that you relate to, so you are going to live in that way that is unique to you. But it's always going to point back to the fact that I am no longer a sinner, but I am a saint. I have been made new in Christ. Let's pray to that end. Father, as we consider the blessings of this past year and its challenges, and as we know that the new year will also bring moments of great joy as well as moments of tender difficulties, I pray, Father, that in all this, you would remind us each and every day 
that we are dead to sin, that we are free from its bonds, that you have given us a new life in which I can be an influence of good and change, that I can be an influence of love and tenderness, that I can be an agent of mercy, all in Christ's name, because he came before me and he has accomplished for me new life. Help us, Father, to remember that. Not just for a year, but for an hour even. Help us remember that. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, Amen. Well, stay safe and sound the rest of this week and holiday season. See you back next year for a new series. And may God bless your very next hour as you live for him. God bless everyone. See you next